This is a Federal News Network podcast. China can't do anything to prevent Congress from passing a budget on time for 2023. But the China competitiveness bill could do just that. With the year end just three months away now, legislative arguments over the bill threaten budget talks. For how this is all working out, we turn to WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, what is going on with the China bill and the federal budget? Right. You would think, well, what's this have to do with the final federal budget? But this is a big thunderbolt here that's entering the budget talks. Uh, Late last week, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, said he does not like the rumblings that Democrats may still come up with a watered-down version of Build Back Better, and he's threatening to hold up the more than $50 billion China competitiveness bill, which has been the focus of months of talks in House and Senate Conference Committee. Uh, That's the legislation designed to improve U.S. production of semiconductors, streamline production, known as USICA, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. Now, this warning came after word that Democrats had actually made some critical progress on the legislation that would cap the price of prescription drugs separately and deal with energy and climate provisions. This is the legislation that West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin has held up with a variety of reservations and warnings. Uh, That caused uh, McConnell's ears to prick up and say, wait a second, if you're going to move ahead with this, I'm going to hold back on the China competitiveness bill. Now, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer wants to get a reconciliation bill for a vote later this month. But with this major reservation issued by McConnell, it now really puts a lot of this in doubt for July. And the schedule is kind of iffy because they're just running out of time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we only have a few more weeks, obviously, in July after this recent break for lawmakers. And then we'll go on recess in August. When they come back from that, of course, we'll be right in the middle of the midterm election ramp up. So all of this, again, is pointing to another continuing resolution, even though, as is often the case, everyone says they don't want a CR. But that does seem the way we're heading right now. All right. And, uh, well, we'll have to see how it all plays out, because sometimes these things have a way of having sudden breakthroughs, too, because of those warnings issued. Right. And I should add that there has been actual progress on the House side. Uh, Late last week, they approved in the House Appropriations Committee all 12 spending bills. So they are basically ready to go. Obviously, there's some differences here and there, uh, but there is something positive to report on that front. And closer to home, Congress is starting to get annoyed with the thrift savings plan of all things because of a botched rollout of their updated system by which TSP account holders can access it. Right. This was the one that everybody thought was going to be new and improved, right? When it came out about at the start of June, they had a variety of technical improvements, or at least they were supposed to be improvements, including a mobile app. But almost immediately, as you know, uh, after this was rolled out, members started to say we're having problems logging into the system. And then when they had more problems with the technical side of things, They would try to make a call and try to get somebody to talk to them and get them through. Well, that, of course, put more pressure on the system. So uh, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board has said uh, there has been some improvement in connection with that. They've actually staffed up the call centers. They've added more than 300 people to help take these calls. Uh, They just had a public meeting with an update on all of these issues last week. And while they said there's been some improvements and they've had a decline in wait times for 
customers. This still is a huge issue for a lot of lawmakers who are really getting a lot of uh, earfuls of complaints from their constituents who say, you know, I I actually didn't have problems logging in, and I, it was actually working pretty good before all of this happened. So I think we're going to see a lot more heat on this uh, in the weeks and months ahead unless they get things resolved. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP, and the IRS is starting to re-interest Congress uh, in the age of inching up that agency's budget. But then that report came out a couple of weeks ago showing how little progress they've made on customer service. Right. And this is really frustrating to members of both parties here in Congress. They keep trying to get answers and trying to figure out exactly what can be done to fix this agency. Now, the agency, the IRS, for its part, says lawmakers are part of the problem. And going back to the continuing resolution, uh, this report that came out recently from the Electronic Tax Administration Advisory Committee, uh, they basically said to lawmakers, look, every time you guys approve a uh, CR, it only creates more problems for the IRS because they can't continually do long-term buyouts, for example, for the technical issues that they know that they have to address. And this report found that uh, the IRS has actually undergone basically more than 100 CRs over the last two decades. So But basically what they're saying is it's just too hard to do all this long-term planning to get this equipment that they know that they need. So they keep doing these patchwork improvements, trying to get through, you know, around the next corner. But uh, they keep building up. And as we've talked about in the past, the IRS still has a long backlog of paperwork that they need to deal with that goes all the way back through the uh, pandemic and problems beyond uh, that period. So, again, another area where lawmakers are really going to be uh, focusing and trying to find find some solutions to this. And finally, I wanted to ask you about the January 6th hearings. They went on for quite some time. Then there was a surprise extension of them all before the cable television cameras. And they have, at least in some segments of society, been quite gripping and people are watching. Being up on Capitol Hill, what's the effect been from what you can see? Politics aside, and everybody has their own view of these hearings, Republicans obviously uh, don't agree with them. Many of them say they're a sham. Democrats say they're just trying to get this record put out. But I think what's most interesting just in terms of how hearings are held here on Capitol Hill is this may signal a new type of hearing, uh, at least when we have really, really big issues come along. Because instead of doing the typical thing, which would be hold a hearing during the day and then it goes well into the night, and even if you get the attention of the American people during the day, it tends to wander a lot. All of these hearings have been very tightly produced. They actually brought in network television producers to help to get these uh, hearings to be produced so that they're easily digestible for the American people. And whatever you think of them, uh, they all are very well produced. They last each about two hours or so, and then they move from one topic to another. And I think what you may find, maybe on a more minor level, again, depending on the issue, is this may be something of a template for congressional hearings, at least on, as I said, major issues moving forward, because uh, they really do concentrate all the information. They integrate both live testimony with earlier depositions. And I think that, uh, again, whatever you think about these hearings, that has been effective, at least in terms of getting uh, what has happened out from the uh, panel. 
So Marshall McLuhan lives on on Capitol Hill. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Look it up, kids. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Hey, thanks so much. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know, been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. 
But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's, that was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia Don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney, but, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time.